The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore, Part 4, The 1900s, Sigmund Freud and Psychoanalysis, Part 2. Freud's take on psychotherapy has been more influential than any other theory of therapy and more influential than any other part of his own theory. Here are some of the major points, some of the ideas that Freud thought were necessary for therapy to be conducted. Number one is a relaxed atmosphere. The client must feel free to express anything. The therapy situation is, in fact, a unique social situation, one in which you do not have to be afraid of social judgment or ostracism. In fact, in Freudian therapy, the therapist practically disappears. Add to that the physically relaxing couch, dim lights, soundproof walls, and the stage is set. Number two, free association. The client may talk about anything at all. The theory is that with relaxation, the unconscious conflicts will inevitably drift to the fore. It isn't far off to see a similarity between Freudian therapy and dreaming. However, in therapy, there is the therapist who is trained to recognize certain clues to problems and their solutions ideas that the client would likely overlook. Resistance. One of these clues to which the therapist is attuned is resistance. When a client tries to change a topic, uh, draws a complete blank in response to a question, falls asleep, comes in late, skips an appointment altogether, the therapist says, aha, these resistances suggest that the client is nearing something in his free associations that he, the client, unconsciously, of course, finds threatening. Next is dream analysis. When we're asleep, we are somewhat less resistant to our unconscious, and we will allow a few things, in symbolic form, of course, to come into awareness. Now, these wishes from the id provide the therapist and the client with more clues. Many forms of therapy make use of the client's dreams, but Freudian interpretation is distinct in its tendency to find sexual meanings in the dream content. Parapraxis. A parapraxis is a slip of the tongue, often called a Freudian slip. Freud felt that a parapraxis was also a clue to unconscious conflict. Freud was also interested in the jokes that his clients told. In fact, Freud felt that almost everything meant something almost all the time. Dialing a wrong number, making a wrong turn, misspelling a word, were serious objects of study for Freud. However, 
he himself noted, in response to a student who asked what his cigar might be a symbol for, that long, cylindrical, dark object that he kept dabbing into his mouth, Freud replied, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Or is it? Other Freudians became interested in projective tests, such as the famous Rorschach inkblot test. The theory behind these tests is that when a stimulus is vague, the client will fill in the ambiguity with his or her own unconscious themes. Again, these themes could provide the therapist with clues. Transference occurs when a client projects feelings toward the therapist that more legitimately belong with certain important others. Freud felt that transference was necessary in therapy in order to bring the repressed emotions that have been plaguing the client for so long to the surface. You can't really feel angry, for example, without a real person to be angry at. The relationship between the client and the therapist contrary to popular images, is very close in Freudian therapy, although it is understood that that relationship cannot get out of hand. Catharsis is the sudden and dramatic outpouring of emotion that occurs when the trauma is resurrected. You know, that box of Kleenex on the end of the table is not just there for decoration. Insight is becoming aware of the source of the emotion of the original traumatic event. The major portion of the therapy is completed when catharsis and insight are experienced. What should have happened many years ago, because you were too little to deal with it back then or under too many conflicting pressures, has now happened, and you are on your way to becoming a happier person. So Freud said that the goal of therapy is simply, quote, to make the unconscious conscious. The only thing more common than a blind admiration for Freud seems to be an equally blind hatred for him. Certainly, the proper attitude lies somewhere in between. Let's start by exploring some of the apparent flaws in Freud's theory. The least popular part of Freud's theory is the Oedipal complex and the associated ideas of castration anxiety and penis envy. What is the reality behind these concepts? It is true that some children are very attached to their opposite-sex parent and very competitive with their same-sex parent. It is true that some boys worry about the differences between boys and girls and fear that someone may cut off their penis. It is true that some girls are likewise concerned and wish that they had a penis. And it is true that some of these children retain these affections, fears, and aspirations into adulthood. Most personality theorists, however, Consider these examples aberrations rather than universals, exceptions rather than rules. 
They occur in families that aren't working as well as they should, where parents are unhappy with each other or use their children against each other. They occur in families where parents literally denigrate girls for their supposed lack or talk about cutting off the penises of unruly boys. They occur especially in neighborhoods where correct information on even the simplest sexual facts is not forthcoming, and children learn mistaken ideas from other children. If we view the Oedipal crisis, castration anxiety, and penis envy in a more metaphorical and less literal fashion, they can be useful concepts. Do we love our mothers and fathers as well as compete with them? Yes. Children probably do learn the standard heterosexual behavior patterns by imitating the same-sex parent and practicing on the opposite-sex parent. In a male-dominated society, having a penis or being male is better than not, and losing status for a male can be very scary. And wanting the privileges of the male, rather than the male organ, is a reasonable thing to expect from a girl with aspirations. But Freud did not mean for us to take these concepts metaphorically. Some of his followers, however, certainly did. A more general criticism of Freud's theory is its emphasis on sexuality. Everything, both good and bad, seems to stem from the expression or repression of the sex drive. Many people question that and wonder if there are other forces at work. Freud himself later added the death instinct, the thanatos, but that proved to be yet another of his less popular ideas. So let me point out that, in fact, a great deal of our activities are in some fashion motivated by sex. If you take a good hard look at our modern society, you will find that much advertising uses sexual images. That movies and television programs often don't sell well if they don't include some titillation. That the fashion industry is based on a continual game of sexual hide-and-seek, and that we all spend a considerable portion of every day playing the mating game. Yet we still don't feel that all of life is sexual. But Freud's emphasis on sexuality was not based on the great amount of obvious sexuality in his society. It was based on the intense avoidance of sexuality, especially among the middle and upper classes, and most especially among women. What we too easily forget is that the world has changed rather dramatically over the last hundred years. We forget that doctors and ministers recommended strong punishment for masturbation, that leg was a dirty word, that a woman who felt sexual desire was automatically considered a potential prostitute, that a bride was often taken completely by surprise by the events of the wedding night and could well faint at the thought. It is to Freud's credit 
that he managed to rise above his culture's sexual attitudes. Even his mentor, Brewer, and the brilliant Charcot could not fully acknowledge the sexual nature of their clients' problems. Freud's mistake was more a matter of generalizing too far and not taking cultural change into account. It is ironic that much of the cultural change in sexual attitudes was in fact due to Sigmund Freud's work. One last Freudian concept that is often criticized is the unconscious. It is not argued that something like the unconscious accounts for some of our behavior, but rather how much and the exact nature of the beast. Behaviorists, humanists, existentialists all believe that A, the motivations and problems that can be attributed to the unconscious are much fewer than Freud thought, and B, the unconscious is not the great churning cauldron of activity that Freud made it out to be. Most psychologists today see the unconscious as whatever we don't need or don't want to see. And some theorists don't use the concept at all. On the other hand, at least one theorist, Carl Jung, proposed an unconscious that makes Freud's unconscious look puny. But we will leave all of these views for a later, more appropriate chapter. People often have the unfortunate tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. If they don't agree with ideas A, B, and C, they figure that ideas X, Y, and Z must be wrong as well. But Freud had quite a few good ideas. So good that they have been incorporated into many other theories. To the point where we often forget to give Freud the credit. First, Freud made us aware of two powerful forces and their demands on us. Back when everyone believed that people were basically rational, Freud showed how much of our behavior was based on biology. When everyone else conceived of people as individually responsible for their actions, Freud showed the impact of society. When everyone thought of male and female as roles determined by nature or established by God, Freud showed just how much male and female depended upon family dynamics. The id and the superego, the psychic manifestations of biology and society, will always be with us in some form or another. The second of Freud's great contributions is the basic theory, going back to Brewer, that certain neurotic symptoms have as their cause psychological trauma. Although most theorists 
no longer believe that all neuroses can be so explained, or that it is necessary to relive the trauma in order to get better. It has become a common understanding that a childhood full of neglect, abuse, addiction, alcoholism, abandonment, and tragedy leads to an unhappy adult. The third of Freud's contributions is the idea of ego defenses. Even if you are uncomfortable with Freud's idea of the unconscious, it is clear that we engage in little manipulations of reality, and our memories of that reality will be changed to suit our own needs, especially when those needs are strong. I would recommend that you learn to recognize these defenses. You will find that having names for them will help you to notice them, both in yourself and others. Finally, the basic form of therapy has been largely set by Sigmund Freud. Except for some behaviorist therapies, most therapy is still the talking cure and still involves a physically and socially relaxed atmosphere. And even if other theorists do not care for the idea of transference, the highly personal nature of the therapeutic relationship is generally accepted as important to success. Some of Freud's ideas are clearly tied to his own culture and era. Other ideas are not easily testable. Some may even be a matter of Freud's own personality and experiences. For instance, Freud grew up with a older, perhaps more distant father, and a young, attractive mother who doted upon him, a mother to whom he felt particularly attached. Might this also help to explain his take on the Oedipal complex? But regardless, Freud was an excellent observer of the human condition, and enough of what he said has relevance today that he will be part of personality textbooks for years to come. Even when theorists come up with dramatically different ideas about how we work, they still compare their ideas with Freud's. Freud's. 